Wonderful. I'm glad to be here. I finally get to relax and preach a sermon. You don't know how stressful some of these things are. This afternoon I was asked to go to the general conference meeting we had on medical missionary work and the blending of our works together. And I finally realized when I got there that I had been told that I would be speaking, except that I hadn't remembered until I got there. Now, you can see how stressful something like that can be. And it was cold in the room, and I began to shake. But anyway, I sent a prayer up to the Lord, and the Lord hears our prayers. He calmed me right down, and we were able to say something. The Lord is good, isn't he? Yes. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Now, you all know our theme. It is time to be about our Father's business. And tonight I'd like to focus on the word business. Isn't that what ASI is all about? Yes. Sharing Christ in the the marketplace, sharing Christ is our business. And it's important, I believe, with all my heart, I believe, that we should put ourselves in a frame of mind where we think in terms of what God would be doing in our business were He here in our place. Now, the words, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business, were uttered by Jesus when he was just 12 years old. Even at that young age, Jesus was on the job. Jesus knew what his father's intentions were for him, and he went about to do his father's business. Now, friends, we must have that mindset. We must not have the mindset that is in the minds of the people who do not have a God. Now, I've asked you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start reading with verse 31. Jesus is speaking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, take no thought. Therefore, don't use your brain power on these things. Don't worry. Take no, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? God is speaking to his people, and he's saying, I don't want you to waste any brain energies on what you're going to eat, and what you're going to wear, and what you're going to drink, and what you're going to drive, and what kind of house you're going to live in, and what kind of money you're going to make. This is not what we are about. As a matter of fact, it says so in verse 32, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Do you know who the Gentiles are? As far as I know, not being a theologian, the word Gentiles means the ungodly, the people who have no God. And if you have no God living in this world, you can imagine, in this world, what is there? Well, there isn't anything else but what we eat and what we drink and what we wear and what we drive and what we live in and the money we make and trying to make ourselves as successful as we can in this world because that's all there is, this world. But Jesus comes along and he says, listen, I don't want you to take any thought about these things. Do you know why he says that? It's implied in the next verse or in the same verse, the last part. For your heavenly Father knows that ye have need of all these things. What's the implication here? The implication is that God will supply the need. The promise is in there. It's written between the lines and it happens to be true. Is it true? 
It's true. And so I guess it's a shame if God's people spend their brain power on the things that God has promised to supply. If we would just forget it. Just be about his business. And he says, I'm going to supply the food you're going to need. I'm going to supply the drink you're going to need, the clothes you're going to need, the money you're going to need, the house you're going to need. I am going to supply it. So don't waste your energy right there. I want you to save your energy to be about my business. And his business is in verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, that is to expand it, and his righteousness, that is to receive the gift of his righteousness, so that you can have the character of Jesus Christ built in you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Will be added unto you. There used to be a time when I would envy those who somehow were blessed with so much wealth. Well, I'd like to be blessed with so much wealth, too. But do you know I am? It's right here. It's promised. My God shall supply all my needs. How much more do I need than that? My God, it says here, all these things shall be added unto you if you will do my business. Long time ago, long time ago, at an ASI convention, and it's just come to my mind, my wife was being interviewed because she was doing some work in Africa. We were, we were doing some work in Africa. And I remember my wife saying to the people who were listening that our children had left home. She had the empty nest syndrome. She was going through a real struggle. Here we are in Africa, and our children were going home to America, and that's a long way away, and we were feeling it. We really were. But I remember at the convention, she was telling the people that she had made a plan, a bargain with God. She said, listen, I, I will take care of the work you give me to do in Africa if you will take care of my children. Does he do stuff like that? Oh, yes, he does. Yes, he does. So this is the mindset we want to have. And obviously, God has two purposes for his people. He wants us to receive the righteousness of God so that we can have the character of Jesus Christ. And he wants us, once we have the character of Jesus Christ, he wants us to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit and by a life that reflects the image of Jesus Christ. He wants us to go out there and build up his kingdom. That's what he wants from us. Except that, obviously, God has a problem with his Laodicean people. We are lackadaisical about character perfection and active soul winning. Now, I may be speaking these words to the wrong people. These are ASI members, I understand. You're probably more active than most. But just in case, now, just in case you're not, we need to be. We need to hear this. And it's true. We've been here a long time as Seventh-day Adventists. We should have bought in to the intentions that Jesus has in the most holy place of the sanctuary a long time ago. And we should have gone home long ere this. There must be a reason why it hasn't happened, don't you think? And I think this is it right here. We've been easygoing. We've been nominal about this. God wants us to have the character of Jesus. And he wants us to be witnesses in a mighty way. And he plans to do that. 
Now, we're going to take time to look, first of all, at character building. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. What I'm going to share with you for just a few minutes, some of you have already heard in another sermon. I promise I'm not preaching the same sermon. I'm just using this as a springboard. We need it. At least, I need it. We're in Revelation chapter 6. By the time I get through reading it, you're going to wonder what this has to do with character building. But hang on, you're going to see it in a few minutes. Revelation 6, we're looking at verse 9. We're going to start there. And this is Jesus opening the fifth seal. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of men that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be killed. So what in the world does that have to do with character building? Well, actually, it has very little to do with character building. Ah, but there's something very strange here, and it has to do with what Ellen White has to say about this passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, she makes a direct comment on this passage of Scripture, and in the direct comment, she takes an amazing leap. And I want you to see this. I'm going to read from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is Volume 7 of the Bible Commentary, 968. Volume 7, 968. When the fifth seal was opened, John the Revelator in vision saw beneath the altar the company that were slain from the wor- for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now notice the next two words. After this. After what? Well, after the fifth seal was broken and opened, then it says, after this. After the breaking of the fifth seal came the scenes described in the 18th of Revelation when those who are faithful and true are called out from Babylon. So are you getting the picture here? Jesus breaks the fifth seal and it is written there. It's read. We've just read it. And Ellen White says after this, right after the fifth seal, the seal comes the scenes depicted In Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, when the whole world is lightened with the glory of God's character. And when I first read that, I began to think, what in the world? How can that be? It hardly even makes sense. This is the beginning of the book of Revelation. She jumps almost clear to the other end and says that one is connected with the other. And I couldn't make sense of it unless something had gone wrong. Because I began to think, what in the world... Are we going to do with Revelation chapter 7 to 17? Are they supposed to be missing? They're not supposed to be there? Or am I misunderstanding something? Is, did something go wrong? And friends, something did go wrong. And we can see that quite clearly, actually, if we just keep on reading. And by the way, if the fifth seal is followed by Revelation 18, then I suppose the next thing to follow would be the second coming of Jesus. Well, what's the sixth seal all about? You know that it's about the second coming of Jesus. If you look at verse 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? What is this depicting? The second coming of Jesus. So the fifth seal leads to Revelation 18, leads to the second coming of Jesus. Do you know that that tells me that something went wrong? And if we keep on reading, there are no chapter divisions. We've been told that many times. So we just keep reading right into Revelation chapter 7. And I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus sent four angels. God sent four angels in Revelation chapter 7. What did he send the four angels to do? I can hear you. It's, and this is the same answer I always get when I ask this question. Jesus sent the, the four angels to hold back the winds of strife. And do you know that that is the wrong answer? Jesus did not send, God did not send the four angels to hold back the four winds of strife. This is what they end up doing, but that's not why they were sent. And you can see it in the text here. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, and they end up holding the four winds of the earth, that the winds of strife should not blow upon the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to what? To hurt. In other words, to destroy. That's what it says. The earth and the sea, saying, Don't hurt the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in our foreheads. God had sent the four angels to destroy the earth. But when he got there... God's people were not ready. They were not sealed in their foreheads. And if you read early writings, you'll know that Jesus yells back to his father, hold, 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 four times because my people are not sealed with the seal of the living God. There's a parallel passage to all of this in Ezekiel chapter 9. I assume you know there's a parallel passage there. In Ezekiel chapter 9, we're not going to take time to go there, but in Ezekiel chapter 9, God sends... Six men with destroying weapons in their hands. And then one of the men has a writer's inkhorn. He's dressed in linen, a priest's attire, and he's got a writer's inkhorn in his hand, and he's going about to put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in Jerusalem. Now you know that the mark he's putting on their foreheads is the seal of the living God. So after the work is done, then God sends the men with the destroying weapons in their hands to begin destroying. And he says, don't pity, don't have compassion on old or young or male or female or little children or anything. Just destroy everything, except those that have the mark. Yeah. So here comes the angels, um, or the, the men with the destroying weapons in their hands, and they're coming, and when they get there, they're about to start destroying. But the man with the rider's inkhorn in his hand has not finished his work. And so they're having to hold the four winds of strife. Yeah. Who is this angel? Um, when we're speaking about Revelation chapter 7 verse 2, the angel ascending from the east. Who is this angel anyway? In early writings, page 89, said the angel, the third angel is binding or sealing them in bundles for the heavenly garner. So who is that angel coming up from the east? 
It's the third angel of Revelation chapter 14. Early writings, 118, paragraph 1. I then saw the third angel, said my accompanying angel, fearful is his work, awful is his mission. He is the angel that is to select the wheat. He's the great selector. He's the great judge, in other words. He's to select the wheat from the tares and to seal and bind the wheat for the heavenly garner. So who is, the, who is this? Well, first of all, it's the angel ascending from the east. It's the third angel of Revelation 14. In Ezekiel chapter 9, it's the man with a rider's inkhorn in his hand, dressed in a priest's linen, and he is the judge. If you go to John chapter 5, go with me if you have Bibles. We're looking at John chapter 5 and verse 22. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. How much of the judgment? All. And so this is all a, representative, a representation of Jesus Christ. This is his work in the most holy place of the sanctuary. His work is to seal God's people with the seal of the living God. To put the character of Jesus Christ in our foreheads, in our minds, in our character. That's what it is. He's going, he's trying, he's working in order to present his people faultless before the throne of God. You can read that in the three angels' messages, can't you? Sure, if you went, and we're not going to go there, but if you went to Revelation chapter 14, you will see that God has given three messages, the three angels' messages, and the purpose is to perfect the 144,000 who get sealed, of course, and who don't fall for any, any corrupt doctrine, we can see that in, oh, I forget how it's worded. But anyway, they follow the Lamb whithersoever He will go. They have no guile in their mouth, and they are faultless before the throne of God. This is the sealing message. That's what it's about. And I have a question for you. Why does the Seventh-day Adventist church identify itself with the three angels' messages? Have you noticed that almost anywhere you go, and we're speaking about the Seventh-day Adventist church, we talk, about, we talk about the church of the three angels. If I was to ask you this evening, why is that? Would you know what to say? Is it just something we've grown up with, and uh, it sounds good, and we don't quite know what it means, and we couldn't explain it if we tried? I mean, it's amazing to me, but I would like if we could. You know we're 17 million Seventh-day Adventists in the, in the world. It would be very interesting for me if we could interview all of these people just to find out how many of them actually know what this means. How many do you think could answer this question? Yeah. Well, obviously, our founding fathers could answer the question because it came from over there. Our founding fathers understood what God was up to. Our founding fathers understood that we are not just another denomination. They understood that God raised the people so that he could seal them with his character, so that he could pour out his Holy Spirit upon them, so that we could enlighten the whole world with the glory of God's character. This is a movement, not just another denomination. The problem, of course, is that as Seventh-day Adventists, we've contented ourselves with playing church like other nominal Christians. We've been satisfied with our Christian lukewarmness, and we've failed to buy in to God's intentions for us. 
Do you know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place? Do you know the implications of that? Do you know where that should lead us? Do you know what we ought to be doing? Far more than we're doing today, especially in the process of character building. In Great Controversy, page 488, the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Is it? All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of our great high priest. Why? Well, watch the answer. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position with God's, which God designs them to fill. Friends, faith is not exercised in a vacuum. Faith has to be based on something solid. God's word, God's promises, God's commandments, and God's intentions. And when Jesus moved from the holy place of the sanctuary into the most holy place of the sanctuary, he went there with a purpose for his people. And if we don't know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary, how in the world are we going to follow him? How in the world are we going to buy into his intentions for us? Consequently, the angels are holding back the four winds of strife until you and I get with the program. It is time. It is time to be about our Father's business. And if we don't know fully what that business is, then we need to start studying the sanctuary message. We need to understand what it is he's doing and we need to shut our ears to those who would like to put away the sanctuary message. You know there's a lot of people who would like to do that, don't you? Don't do it. Don't do it. Otherwise, you cannot have the faith. You will not have the faith. You will not be able to exercise the faith that you need to exercise for this time. Again, this is volume 5 of the testimony, 421. This is the great day of preparation and the solemn work going on in the sanctuary above should be kept constantly before the people. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the sanctuary? And it says here it should be kept constantly, constantly before the people because, friends, this is present truth. This is what God is doing. This is where His intentions are for His people. There's a lot to preach in the Bible. We can preach about all kinds of stuff in the Bible. And it's all true and it's all great. But friends, if we don't go there, if we don't grasp what is going on in the sanctuary, then we cannot exercise all right faith. Amazing. This is the great day of preparation. And the solemn work going on in the sanctuary above should be kept constantly before the people and urged upon their consciences with earnestness and power. The subject of the sanctuary will give us correct views of the importance of the work for this time. This time. Today. The day in which we are living. So if we want correct views of what Jesus is attempting to do for us, through his people, for himself, and glorifying his own name, then we need to go to the sanctuary and look into it. So how important is that, that we buy into it? Well, friends, it's so important that Jesus will not come until we go there. 
and until we are sealed with the seal of the living God. Important? Oh, I don't know how to impress it upon you. We're going to move over now to the expansion of God's kingdom. I would like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4, those of you who study your Bible. Um, already have an idea of where I'm going. John chapter 4, this is the lady, the woman at the well, this is what we usually say. Jesus is on his way to Galilee. He takes a shortcut through Samaria. He ends up sitting at Jacob's well. He's exhausted, he's hot, and he's, and he's hungry. Now, I don't know if he's more exhausted than his disciples were. In any case, he sent his disciples to town to buy to buy food so that they can eat. And I, I'm kind of thinking, you know, it seems to me that Jesus would have as much energy as any other man, but I think he had a divine appointment and he knew it. And so he's sitting there at Jacob's well, and wouldn't you know it, by coincidence, a lady comes along, a woman comes along, and um, she's coming along at the time of day when the women of the town are not necessarily wanting to come and get water because it's too hot at that time of day. But she comes at that time of day because she's, she's got a reputation, you understand. If you follow the text, you'll find out that she had five husbands and the one she's living with is not her husband. And so you can imagine the disapproving looks that she might receive were she there with all the other town gossips and it would be a problem to her. So she goes at a different time of day. She's a lady with a bad reputation. Now, it's amazing. Just um, a week and a half ago, I went to the Oak Haven Convention in Michigan, and Gail Clark from Miracle Meadows, the president of Miracle Meadows, was there preaching on the very same subject, and she did an amazing job to show that Jesus always went for the outcast and how he treated the outcast. And making a difference, of course, contrasting how some of us might deal with the outcast. And, of course, in the Bible we see how it might have been for this poor woman. But Jesus reaches out to her. This was a candidate for heaven. Now, hey, I'll tell you what. There's a lot of people out there that I don't judge as candidates for heaven. And because I judge it that way, I kind of am more reticent to say something. I would like to say something to people who look like they might be receptive. But who, who am I to know who is receptive? Do you know? Yeah. So Jesus reached out to everyone, and he especially made an effort for this lady here. Well, it caught her by surprise, of course, because it was totally totally out of the realm of the day, the customs of the day. Jewish men did not speak to women. They especially did not speak to Samaritan women. And they would not certainly speak to this kind of Samaritan woman. And so here she is, and here's a Jewish man, and he asks a favor of her. He wanted some water, and she is just blown away. And so she says, how is it? that you, being a Jewish man, will ask of me, a Samaritan woman, a favor. She just couldn't put that together. I want you to notice how he responds to this now in verse 10. I love this verse. I just love it. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. This is tantamount to saying, If you only knew. 
Have you ever approached someone who comes at you from one angle or another and you know they're not seeing the picture and you say to yourself, oh, sister, brother, if you only knew. If you only knew. Now, here we are, human beings. We can't know everything. And obviously, this woman didn't know. And Jesus is saying this to her. If you only knew, everything would change. If you only knew, you wouldn't think the way you're thinking. If you only knew, you wouldn't say the things you say. If you only knew, you wouldn't do the things you're doing. If you only knew the gift of God. Do you know the gift of God? Do you know what God would like to give you this evening and as we go on? If you only knew. But friends, you don't. Now, it's a bit arrogant, I suppose, of me to say you don't. But you don't. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind, I don't. The gift of God, we know something about it. That's why we're here. God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Do you know that God so loving the world with His Son has freely given us all things? Do you know what it means to have all things? You have all things. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Now, we don't, we don't know <laughs> if we only knew. Let me tell you something. If God could open our hearts and our minds so that we could receive all that he wants to give us, temptations would be superseded to a great extent. Jesus was tempted, and he knew, so I can't say we'd never be tempted. Ah, but friends, things would be so different. And that's our goal. This is what we want. If we only knew, if we only knew, In John chapter 17, it says, this is life eternal, if we only knew him. Yeah. Get to know him. Make that effort. I'll tell you, I just, I just know. I mean, I've been around long enough to know a few little things. Coming here, well, anyway, my life has been so busy, you couldn't believe it. But I take time every day to get to know him. And I pray the worse the responsibility, the, the tougher the responsibility, the more, the more unnerving the responsibility, the more time I take to pray. I have made messes in my life. Maybe you haven't. But I have made messes in my life. And I have noticed that when I take the time on my knees to plead with God and to, when I really actually feel my need, from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. That's what the Desire of Ages, page 300 says. From the soul that feels his need and approaches God with his need showing, praying with an intensity of purpose, Proportionate to the value of the object we seek. That's, that's volume 6, 175. When we have a desire proportionate to the object we seek, God says, I will give it to you because with my son, I have freely given you all things. It's all there. It's at your disposal. I don't care who you are. It's true. It's true. This girl needed to know that, this lady. She's dead. You need to know that. We need to know that. We need to exercise that. So Jesus approaches her and he says, if you only knew, if you only knew who it is 
that says to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It was all um, confusing to her. What is this guy talking about? I've come to the well to draw water. He comes to the well. He hasn't got a bucket. He asks me for water. Then he offers me water. And he doesn't even have a bucket to draw water with. It's like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and so she says to him, hey, how is it you're going to do that without anything to draw? Notice his answer here in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Yeah, we know that. Have you ever drunk water? Is that the last time you were thirsty? You've never had to drink water since? This is common sense. This is what it is. But then what he says in verse 14, But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Really? <laughs> and the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What did he mean that if a man drinks this water, he shall never thirst. Have you drunk from the Word of God so you'd never had a desire for the Word of God again? Is that what he meant? Well, obviously not. That can't be what he meant because the more I drink from the, from the living water, the more I drink from the Word of God, the more I want to drink from the Word of God. It has my heart. It really, really does, and I want to drink. So that obviously is not what he meant. Do you know what he meant? He meant that if you were to drink from the Word of God, take a deep draft of the Word of God, you would never thirst for anything else. This is what Jesus is trying to say. This is what Jesus is trying to give us. Every other gift would be eclipsed, temptation would pale by comparison, addiction would lose its power, and attraction would be all superseded. Any other attraction out there in this world. Say, have you had this experience? Have you drunk deep enough? Is this your experience with God? You remember Peter? We're going to John chapter 6 now. Well, we don't have to go there because I'm just going to take a second. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking about being the bread of life. And 70 disciples walk away disgusted. They thought he was the Messiah, and now he's telling us that the kingdom is made up of spiritual things, and he's not going to overcome the Romans, and they're disgusted with it, and they walk away from him. And Jesus comes to Peter and to the disciples, and he says, will you walk away also? What did Peter say? Where will I go? <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? If you have drunk deep enough. Now there are plenty of people who turn their backs on God today. Are there not? There are plenty of people who have been Christians for a while and they find it so whatever they find it. And they turn their backs and they go back out into the world. We've had this experience in our family just lately. A young niece of mine has turned her back on God. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. If somebody was to say to, to me... Would you turn your back on Adventism? Would you turn your back on Jesus? Would you turn your back on the Word of God? I would say, where would I go? What is there in this world that compares with this? 
And I'm sure that I haven't drunk as deep as I need to drink, but I have drunk just deep enough to know that there isn't anywhere else to go in this world. This is what Peter was all about. Peter had been a fisherman. Jesus had rescued him from, from the doldrums of everyday work. Well, excuse me. I don't want to insult anyone. Hey, how would you like to be a fisherman? I used to work in the mines. I worked underground in the mines for nine years. Do you know how grateful I am that I'm not there today? Yeah, because Jesus called me out of there. And he has given me experience after experience after experience with himself to the point where I've had the opportunity of preaching the gospel in 34 countries. And I'm nobody, but Jesus can do that with nobody, you understand? And that's what he did for Peter. So when you put yourself in Peter's shoes and Jesus says, you guys, are you going to leave also? I can see Peter looking at his past life and looking at the life and the experiences he's had for three years with Jesus and saying, like... I want to go back there. <laughs> Where will I go? Where will I find anything better than what I found? There's no doubt in my mind that we haven't found it all. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that there isn't anything better than true Christianity and walking with Jesus Christ. If your world collapsed, today. And by the way, some people's worlds fall apart sometimes. This is part of life. It happens to people. If your world should fall apart, would you know that alcohol is an empty substitute? Would you know that drugs and sex and sin and money and movies and comfort food or whatever it is that the world has to offer to comfort us in our, in our distresses, would you know that, that all of it is an empty substitute? It is. We don't need to find it out by experience. Or maybe we have the experience. There's no way to know except to taste. And so we're out here. We want to invite all the people to taste. Taste and see that God is good. And if in your experience you haven't tasted enough, if today you're saying, sitting in your seat, well, you know, I haven't found what I was looking for in Adventism, and I don't know. Maybe there's something better somewhere. Listen, you haven't drunk deep enough. Jesus was offering this to her, if you only knew. If you only knew. Turn with me. Keep your finger right here because I'm coming right back. John chapter 7, and we're going to come right back to John chapter 4. John chapter 7. I just want you to see what it is that Jesus was offering this lady. Verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then it says in verse 38, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. I have the opportunity next week of speaking at the Northwest Youth Congress in Spokane. And they want me to speak on the Holy Spirit. 
And so I've had, because I have lots of time, I've had to prepare seven sermons on the Holy Spirit just lately. And I'll tell you why. I've come to a realization that without the Holy Spirit, I am nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, I can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, I don't know anything as I ought to know it. I am nothing. It's amazing, but the Holy Spirit is God. And God can do anything, and God wants to take possession. Can you imagine what it would be like if He had possession of your whole body, mind, and soul, and He could do whatever He wants? Well, He could do what God can do, and He would do it through you. We cannot do anything successfully without God, without God's permission. Did you know that that is so? Yeah, yeah. And so it's becoming very, very clear to my poor little brain how much I need God and how much more I pray for His presence in my life. I'm just going to take a second. You see, I've got a, 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 a clock to watch, and I am deadly scared, afraid, that I'm going to finish five minutes early, and somehow somebody's going to have to fill in the time. So I'm, I, I have time to read to you a little quotation. This is um, Faith and works, page 27, paragraph 0. Divine power, that's God, and the human agency combined will be a complete success. For Christ's righteousness accomplishes everything. Yeah. Do you know? We need Christ's righteousness. I'm going to go to another quotation. I have quotations all over my Bible, by the way. In volume 3 of the Testimonies, 382, paragraph 2. The Lord requires us to move with a humble dependence upon His providence. It is not in man that walketh to direct His steps. In God is our prosperity and our life. Now watch. Nothing. How much? Nothing can be done prosperously without the permission and blessing of God. Nothing. And if you are prosperous, it's because God has permitted you to be prosperous. You ought to give Him thanks and you ought to praise His name. Then it says, He can set His hand to prosper and bless or He can turn His hand against us. Now, how would you like God to turn His hand against you? Wouldn't that be terrible? Yes, but He can set His hand for you. And the Bible says, and that's where I have it in my Bible, if we honor Him, He honors us. Friends, honor God. He will honor you. There's no doubt in my mind. And so this is what Jesus is offering this lady. He says, if you only knew, if you only knew who it is that's talking to you. Can you imagine? You're living in a day when the Messiah is expected to come. You can't tell the Messiah from anybody else. You don't know if he's ever come. You don't know what in the world is going on. And one day you meet a man and he says, you're looking at him. I am he. I am the Messiah. How do you think she would have related to that? Didn't he say that to her? In here, somewhere? This is, we're, in, we're in John chapter 4 now. If you go back... I have to find it because it's not part of what I was... It's in verse 26. Let's go to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, 
I that speak unto thee am he. What do you think was happening in her heart? How do you think she was feeling? Because when Jesus spoke, the Holy Spirit took the words he spoke, and it wasn't just like, you know, a false prophet comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. And you go like, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know who you are. But this isn't the same way. When Jesus spoke, the Holy Spirit took the words he, he was speaking, and he would drive it, the Holy Spirit would drive the words so concretely into the hearts of those he was speaking that they knew that what he was saying was true. So here's this woman. She's a woman of ill repute. And Jesus, the, the Messiah, the very Messiah, is standing in front of her. And he says, I am he that speaks to you. I am the Messiah. What do you think she felt? It's amazing. But you know, in verse 15, if we go there, the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, what's interesting to me is Jesus had said to her, if you knew who it was that's speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So finally, she comes into the text and she says, okay, give it to me. Did he do it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In the very words he spoke, I am he. He communicated something that went straight to the heart. And what did she do? Verses 28 to 30. The woman then left her water pot and went her way. I mean, the water didn't mean anything any, anymore to her. She had water now that he's given her that she would never thirst for anything else. She left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Wow. She was now a well of water, springing up, gushing forth with good news, filled with power. And brothers and sisters, these people came. They believed it because the Holy Spirit was attending her words also. It's amazing to me. Why would a woman who's had five husbands and now she's living with another one and she comes around, along with a spiritual message, why would the men of the city believe her after all? Her, you see? But they believed her because the Spirit of God was attending her words. Friends, it is time that like her we should be about our father's business it's time to buy into what jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary it's time that we perfected our characters by the power of the holy spirit in cooperation with what jesus is doing and with that infilling of the holy spirit it's time that we went out there and did the work that we are called upon to do. Isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I've got an extra minute left, and we're going to take it to pray. Just bow. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good. And we can tell by the text 
that it doesn't matter what we've been in our lives in the past. I know that you want to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Each one. And we're asking you this night that you would give us this living water. That we would be filled with thy Spirit so that we could be instrumental in God's hands. To fulfill the work that you intended Seventh-day Adventists should do. Father, it is time. Take possession. We want to be about our Father's business. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.